Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, before I begin, I want to remind you if you have not done so, make sure you go to wealthformula.com. And if you are an accredited investor in particular, Sign up for the Wealth Formula Investor Club. This is going to be a uh, year that you're going to want to uh, make sure you get involved, particularly because there's going to be a fair amount of distressed assets that we are going to potentially want to take advantage of. And uh, if you're like, if you'd like to participate, uh, you want to make sure you get on our list. So go to wealthformula.com, and if you're an accredited investor. You just need to sign up and uh, get onboarded. An accredited investor, by definition, is something that you are or you are not. You don't have to apply for it like an accredited, you know, you like take a test or something. Basically, if you're an individual, it's $200,000 per year for two years with a reasonable expectation of continuing that. And if you are a married couple, that number goes up to 300000 Otherwise, it is a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence. If you meet those criteria, you are accredited. So it's, again, it's like being pregnant or not pregnant. You either are or you aren't. So if you meet those criteria, sign up for Investor Club at WealthFormula.com and get onboarded. Now, Today, uh, speaking of investing, you know, what's interesting is in the world of investing, the, the reality is, I'd love to uh, say this was not true, but that you can still do everything right and still lose. I mean, that's just the reality. Frankly, it's supposed to be that way. Otherwise, everyone would make the biggest possible bets all the time and always win. And that's just not reality. You know, in good times, it's very hard uh, to anticipate what could happen if the unexpected occurs, right? You can't, you can't really necessarily anticipate the unexpected and the unexpected always happens. That's the problem. And over the last 24 months, we saw interest rates rise at a slope that's never been seen before in the U.S. economy. And this was literally just a few months after the Federal Reserve called this uh, inflation that it was seeing transient signaling to the investor world that it was not going to raise rates. And boy, not only did they raise rates, but they raised them at a crazy level. And in part, it's probably because they were slow to react that they did so. In hindsight, all of this, it's pretty clear, right? The subsequent rise in interest rates 
uh, were significant because they had to curb inflation, which was actually real. It wasn't fake. And it's all clear now, but I don't remember hearing anyone talk about this scenario before it happened. Maybe there were, but I didn't hear anybody talking about that. And as a result, many people uh, lost money, myself included, and continue to hold our breath. I mean, frankly, at, at, at rates. Uh, now, fortunately, rates are starting to level out. Uh, and as much as we hate it, though, the problem is that, you know, this system that we have of investing and sometimes things not going the way we had planned, this is the way it's supposed to work. And that's just reality. In investing, you have to win more than you lose, right? That's that's the goal. And so the thing is, all of what we are experiencing right now, it's going to happen again in one shape or another. What I mean by that is, you know, over the next few years, those with, I guess, especially uh, those who are uh, who are fortunate and have ice in their veins will buy when everyone uh, is scared. And hopefully they'll remember this feeling, though, of what it feels like when everybody's scared uh, because eventually things will uh, start to feel maybe uh, too good to be true. And as Sir John Templeton put it, at those times in particular, the most dangerous words for an investor in the English language, are this time it's different, right? I mean, you've seen that in the uh, cryptocurrency world multiple times, right? I talked about how, had I actually remembered that, uh, I would have made millions of dollars from cryptocurrency, but the reality is I've netted out probably pretty much nothing because uh, every time things go way up, uh, I think they're going to keep going up. And then in crypto, it's like uh, fast forward, you push the, you know, it's like listening to Audible at, you know, 10 times uh, speed in terms of regular markets. And so before you have any time to react, boom, it's all over. But at any rate, it would be a lot easier to accept this fact of investor life if if it actually applied to the big boys as well, right? To the institutions, but it doesn't. I mean, 2008 was an extreme example of that. The big banks uh, uh, lost big bets. And had those bets come to fruition, certainly they would have made a lot of money, but they didn't win those bets. And unfortunately, uh, they didn't have to pay up. It was a taxpayer who paid for their losses and all the lawmakers said it would never happen again. But it did. It happened again in 2023. Right, it just happened again. The taxpayer stepped in to bail out multiple regional banks. Now, what's interesting about this is those banks this time they weren't even being irresponsible. You're going to find out a little bit about that in this interview today. They were investing in a way that would be deemed conservative, right? Yet they too were the victim of ultimately unparalleled rate hikes by the Fed. You know, so the macro economy bit them in the ass like it just did everybody else. And they weren't being irresponsible. They were not being irresponsible. And they were about to lose money and go insolvent and all that stuff. But lucky for them, they were banks and not individuals like us. And they had big depositors from Silicon Valley who were very connected. And what happened with those regional banks is likely to happen again. You know, that's just the way it is. That's the way the system works. It's unfortunate, but it is reality. Now, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast today 
uh, is a brilliant professor at Stanford. Uh, she's really fun to talk to. Uh, she was brought in actually uh, uh, to investigate that regional bank failures, the two of them that happened over in Silicon Valley. And when she, you know, she's uh, she's she has a very interesting take on this. And if you want to have any idea of how, you know, this whole thing um, uh, in these regional banks worked and how it all played out, you're going to want to listen to this. I found it very fascinating. Uh, she also uh, gives her perspective on the health of the banks right now. Uh, this is a woman who, you know, is very connected. Um, you know, she uh, talks to the government and people listen to her. Uh, Jamie Dimon listens to her. Uh, and uh, so I think it's really valuable uh, information. And when we come back, we will have that interview. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Anat Amadi. She is the George G.C. Parker Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford Graduate School of Business and a senior fellow at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Her disciplinary interests lie in the interaction of business, law, and policy, and specifically governance and accountability mechanisms in the private sector and in government. She's the author of the banker's new clothes. What's wrong with banking and what to do about it? Welcome, Dr. Amadi. How are Thank you? Thank you. So let's start with a very basic question. Um, the banking system, what's wrong with it at, at a high level? So I am a professor at the business school and I taught uh, for many years uh, corporate finance. So I come at banking uh, from the sensibilities of somebody who understands, you know, corporate finance and corporate investment and corporate funding and all the stuff corporations sure. do, which is where yeah. the investors put their money in their securities. And when you step into banking, you kind of go in the rabbit hole because banks are very abnormal, but not in good ways. Yeah. Uh, they're special more in what they get away with is really the bottom line there. And what is it they get away with? That they get away with funding almost everything they do with debt. Part yeah. of that debt is deposits. Now, they can forget in a kind of crazy quote from a bank CEO, they can forget they owe the money just because depositors are so nice to them, <laughs> walking in and giving them money with no collateral, no covenants, nothing. Yeah. And the depositors are kind of trusting the regulators because on top of the deposits, banks pile up a ton of other debt claims mm -hmm. that they use to fund and almost very, very little. Now, it depends on the measurements, plain equity, which is where, you know, you invest and you bear the, you will benefit from the upside and downside is also yours. Here, because so much of the investment is with borrowed money, you get the leverage effect, which is wonderful on the upside, 
but kind of wipes you out on the downside. And then the question is, if you can persist living on very little equity and you keep taking the upside and walking away from the downside or getting the Fed or somebody to help you, then uh, life is good. Right, right. So I guess, you you know, so why is it important to focus on where banks money come from? Because the money that they that they get, which comes from some of us, obviously, if they put that money to risk, the question is who who bears that risk? If they transfer their cost to somebody else and we give them subsidized funding, how are they using it? Are they benefiting the economy? So that's yeah. the issue. You know, when you had to think, you know, laws of easy money, et cetera, you know, it was an issue of, okay, you know, they can do what they want. And then, you know, stuff works well for them on the upside and and can cause big harm to the economy on the downside. Yeah. On the downside, it would be like SVB, and we can discuss that. It would be yeah. the recent banking crisis, or in the worst case, was the financial crisis. And that yeah. caused an enormous recession, you know, which we can go into. And that was not because they had too much equity, but because they had way, way too little. Yeah. So it's a game of heads I win, tails you lose, where the bank is going to win either way. Um, and I think that what you brought up was a, a, I think is a good example to potentially get into because I, I understand that you were part of, uh, or you did some work uh, related to the Silicon Valley Bank. What happened there? I think a lot of people don't really, including me, don't really have a good sense of what happened in the first place to make it insolvent and then ultimately, you know, get bailed out. All right. I'm so glad you asked it. That's such a great question. Yeah. So here's what happened. It's very simple. What happened to Silicon Valley Bank is it had a flood of deposits coming. So during COVID, you know, interest rates were zero, people were getting money, and they oftentimes, you know, just put it in deposits because there wasn't a lot of as many good things to do with them and the safe to put it in deposits. Now, Silicon Valley Bank then ended up with a huge amount of deposit money to do stuff with. And, at the, you know, it stopped having enough good things to put them in because when they invest in anything risky, they may have to put a little bit of equity there. So instead, what they did was they put a lot of that money in government bonds, long-term government bonds, which even though interest rates were zero short-term, you know, long-term could pay you a percent and a half or something yeah. like that. So which at the time safe. seemed like a conservative and safe, reasonable exactly. thing to do. So it's safe. So putting money in treasuries is safe from a credit risk perspective. Then, you know, treasury will not default, or at least it hasn't so far. And um, so if you buy a treasury that promises you a percent and a half, you know, twice a week, twice a year, you know, three quarters percent uh, for 30 years or whatever, and then you get back your, your, your principal, that they'll not default that. The question is, if you want to sell it five years down the line and interest rates increased, it's worth a lot less. So on the security that you might buy at par, like, you know, at $1,000 for the interest and then $1,000 back 30 years later, you know, would go down to, to, to 900, to 800. So for interest rate increases, the thing loses in value. So, the so their balance sheet, all of a sudden, their balance sheet shrinks enormously. Exactly. So all of a sudden, the assets are worth less. Simple, yeah. just like you can lose on other investment. It just so happened that the long-term investments, when interest rates, however safe they are, when interest rates increase, the opportunities to invest in other things with higher interest rates come about. And something that only promises a percent and a half when interest rates are 5% uh, is just going to be worth less. So Mechanically, if I could ask you a question there, mm -hmm. 
when when that balance sheet shrinks and all of a sudden they only have a certain amount of equity, what are they? Is there somehow that that um, they get called on the debt that because they're they're over a certain limit of fractional lending? So no. So what happens then is the debt that they have is the same debt. It could be deposits and then deposits want their money out, which is right. exactly what started happening. And part of why that happened is because at the same time that the interest rates are lowering the value of their investments in long term assets, you know, because they're very sensitive to interest rate risk. That's kind of the duration mm -hmm. to people who know. At the same time, the short term funding that they have from deposits and others is demanding higher interest rates. Yes. So now they either have to pay more or they have them withdraw to go elsewhere to get more. Right. Right, and so all right. of a sudden they gotta they gotta you know either raise more money or pay down more or pay the depositors to get out or other creditors they still owe what they owe and their equities shrunk because their assets shrunk just like if your house value went down you borrowed uh you know with no equity you'd be underwater so yeah. insolvent it equals underwater for a corporation and now they have a situation where their assets are not enough to pay just like an underwater homeowner and so what happened then is they first had to sell some of them so the accounting world allowed them to pretend to be okay for a while the depositors were not paying attention for a while and then mm -hmm. what happened is even though they were insolvent for a little for a few months uh, as interest rates increased they didn't recognize that the the, the regulators were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And until it came to roost in the sense that they had to sell some securities. And when they sold some of them, they had to recognize the losses on their balance sheet. So all of a sudden, they were booking a loss on the assets instead of pretending that the assets are worth more than what they are. So what you say, the balance sheet shrank, that's in market value. But in book value, they could keep it because they yeah. were allowed, if they classify an asset as as hold to maturity, they can allow to keep it at original yes. at original yes. value at par. And Got so it. It, so now they had to recognize the loss because it happened in market. So they might to mark to market their assets. And then it would be the emperor, you know, they're sort of swimming naked as Warren Buffett yeah. they became more evident. And then in order to kind of plug the hole, they tried to raise equity and they couldn't. And that really exposed their insolvency. At that point, nobody would give them a dollar for their equity because they had so much debt and they were insolvent. And that yeah. basically exposed their insolvency. Once the insolvency was so clear, and it should have been clear months before, then everybody started running. Then you start talking yeah, about it, panics and runs yeah. by all these uninsured depositors on social media or whatever. It's the modern version of standing the outside the, the bank, bank, Mary right. Poppins, or it's this modern world, you know, yeah. the, the people standing up in line. Now it was through digital. Okay, but it's the same phenomenon. Your bank is insolvent. You want your money out. Now, of course, then you have the, uh, then you have the bailout, which defied what i guess what the normal yeah. uh, fdic rules were so yeah. maybe you can tell us like what were the fdic regulations at that point and then what was actually done okay so there's actually this is a again an excellent question i'm glad you asked these questions because we just go through that and i'm going to get an a in your class yeah yeah great good you're asking good <laughs> questions you get an a for that in the exam we'll have to ask you about the question uh but anyway uh so what uh what the fdic the fdic is supposed to insure only two hundred and fifty thousand dollars 
but the average deposit in SVB, which was all these people around me, I live in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, the average deposit in SVB was $4 million. Oh, wow. And there were some depositors who had like a billion dollars or more, like four. Oh, wow. So they were not insured. So 95, whatever, you know, percent of the deposits were uninsured. So now on a Friday, when they decided to close the bank, they said the insured depositors, we created another institution. The insured depositors can get access to their money right away. On Monday, say, you know, it was a Friday, the, you know, March 9th or something like that. And uh, March 10th. And, um, and they said the uninsured depositors will let you know. Now, of course, no, everybody here started losing sleep because they were telling them that they don't have access to their money, that they might get only some of their money, they might get a haircut, you know, whatever. So obviously, Silicon Valley is very highly connected. So they start right. everybody and their uncle, all the senators and all the Congress people, you know, that they all these libertarians right here in yeah <laughs> yeah they all of a sudden <laughs> didn't want to face any losses uh, and Great. so sure enough by sunday it was declared that svb was actually systemic systemic is the magic word if you say systemic then they can bail out <laughs> yeah. in other words the the idea and the in the uh, the reason that this was justified is the idea is they could have a significant trickle down effect on the rest of the economy and that the rest of the country would be in danger and, and so almost as a defense so that's that's no. how they use it so what does it mean mm -hmm. to be systemic that you're important so your own failure of default would harm you know people so the people couldn't make payroll or whatever you know if you didn't have access to all your money um or the trickle down the dominoes which we mm -hmm. describe in the book uh, and the dominoes are actually everybody starting to think, wait a minute, if if it's SVB, then it's also this bank and this bank and this bank and this bank. So what happened? First of all, they announced that they would bail out all the depositors on First Republic. Uh, sorry, First Republic came later. That was a different kind of transaction. SVB, Signature, that was the two banks that weekend. Signature was had crypto issues, different things. OK, yeah, and also closed that weekend. Everybody gets paid in full. This was, by the way. I'll go there. Not always what FDIC has done over the years in terms of how it handles failed banks. And then, importantly, which the public may have not uh, understood the lingo there, in the announcement that came on Sunday, March 12th, from the Fed, the Treasury, and the FDIC, they said, okay, FDIC is saying all depositors will get access to their money. Everybody. Every single one, 100%. Okay? So... Even and where did that money come from? Ah, good question again. <laughs> uh, so uh, where did the money come from? They were saying, this is not a bailout. This is not going to come from taxpayer. That's how they, because in Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, Obama said, no more bailouts, period. And they were yeah. promising no more bailouts. So they hate the word with a passion. They would right. never admit that they're bailing out. But guess what? They are. Because here's what happens. What does a bailout mean? It means that people enter the contract and one of them defaults and, and somebody swoops in and make it not happen. In yeah. other words, the person who took the risk or imposed risk on other person, whatever, is not, 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 no longer liable suddenly. Even though they can't pay their debt, the debt gets paid by a third party. So who's the third party here? They're saying, oh, FDIC. Well, how does FDIC get its money? Ah, FDIC charges banks. So that's what happened is that FDIC can have 
and tax the banking system. So they go yeah. to the other banks, especially the big banks, and say, hey, we need money. Yeah. And here's what your bill is. And they send them what they call an assessment. So they send and they and their big banks, you know, or a group of banks, they grumble and they pay. Now, yeah. who is that bank that paid? It's somebody's money. Yeah. Somebody yeah. in the economy. So it's not coming from treasury necessarily, but mm -hmm. now I'm going to make it a little more complicated. Are you following? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> I'm with you. Good student. Uh, <laughs> the next step, the next little piece of the puzzle is that on the same day, the 12th, when they announce that everybody can go back to sleep, everybody's money is safe, they also announced that the Fed will make loans available, liquidity, they like to call it, yeah. to the banks. Bank, yeah. And a little hidden fact there were the following two things. First of all, when the Fed is going to open up all kinds of new lending programs to the banks, meaning the bank can come and say, hey, I got that asset. I'll give it to you as a collateral. You give me a loan. They will overvalue the loans. If you come to them with a, with a, a, a treasury, usually they will value it at fair market value. Right. But they're going to pretend that it's worth at par, what you paid for it. Okay. So you can have okay. a house worth a million dollars and that's now worth 800000 and you get a mortgage lender willing to pay to lend you a million. Yeah, yeah. That's and that happened. goes back to effectively, you know, trying to address the initial problem, which was... Cover was it up. Kick the can uh, down the road. So the mm -hmm. Fed came in to make them a loan, but the Fed is a central bank. The central bank shouldn't make loans to insolvent banks. So how do they do it? How do they cover everything? Treasury makes $25 billion available as backstops to the Fed that they might lose from this overlending to the banks. And mm -hmm. now they're saying to the banks, okay, tell your depositors you're fine, you're fine because you have access to lending from the Fed. Treasury puts taxpayers' money behind this. Yeah. Now tell so, me it's not a bailout. Now tell me it's not a bailout. Yeah, it's a bailout. So the question I guess I have is we went through this whole uh, process in 2008 and there was all sorts of new laws, a lot of regulations. Yep. It, was were they just? I mean, the the things that were done, not enough was done to prevent something like this, right? Is and what should have been done? Do you think? So the book that you mentioned, we wrote mm -hmm. uh, it in two thousand twelve, eleven. After getting into this debate in two thousand ten, and realizing that because there's so much confusion about the topic that we had to write a book that takes people all the way from a mortgage, all the way to what banks and complicated banks do and all of that. And by now it's taking them through what a central bank does and how it all works and how bailouts work and why bailouts persist and all of that. And what we saw is, look, the Dodd-Frank Act, which was sort of the law that was supposed to fix everything, yeah. is a massive piece of, of of legislation, of law. That law, which was like a thousand pages, had numerous parts to it. Many com it was complicated, but there was Volcker rule and rules about, you know, whistleblowers and rules about, you know, um safety and soundness and living wills and on and on and on. A lot of a lot of different uh parts to it. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh I was involved in some of them, particularly uh, you know, the the first and second kind of pillars of it. Uh 
about how they can fail and then AIG or Lehman Brothers would go to FDIC instead of to bankruptcy courts so or kind of resolution of systemic institutions. They created this the financial uh, consumer protection agency because they saw a lot of fraud. So there are all sorts of things happening <clears throat> in Dodd-Frank. Now what happened was it delegated to the regulators the fine print rules. And that process just dragged on and on and on and on to the point that the law itself was never fully implemented. And the critical parts of it that were giving regulators any authority they need to make the system safer were just not done properly. And that's mm -hmm. the part where I come in to say, you know, I don't like some of these regulations at all. There's just one that I like about equity funding. I'm not even telling you what to do in your investments. I'm only telling you to absorb your losses. Let's start there. Let's correct yeah. the upside downside of risk taking. The heads you win, tails you lose. Let's just start there. It's the biggest bargain in regulation. We just got that wrong before the crisis. Let's look how we got it wrong. Let's look how it was designed, which I'm not even getting into all the details of that and the risk weights and this and that. And let's just do that better. And we were saying this with a bunch of academics back in 2010, and they just wouldn't listen. And there was just so much nonsense in this that the book is called The Banker's New Clothes because it's sort of naked emperors. It's like debunking flawed claims. So we went to explain and we explained again and we argued again. And, you know, it was really a sobering experience for me because I don't want to hear it. So bottom line is that they didn't fix it, even despite what they say. Yeah. The regulation remains in one or two words, MS. MS, too much, too complicated, you know, just like the tax code. The tax code is a mess. Yeah. You may teach your, your listeners how to take advantage of that. But that's what everybody <laughs> tries to do about every rule. You know, I have a cartoon that I show my students saying, these new rules will completely change the way we get around them. Of course, everybody wants to yeah. <laughs> get around the rules. Uh, but, you know... You want the good rules and then let people play by the rules. That's yeah. supposed to be capitalism. You know what I mean? Yes. They, 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 they're bad rules. And then there is just a lot of privilege. And it's just a, a toxic mix of kind of nonsense and politics and all kinds of things. I have sort of one final question for you is this, yeah. is that, you know, what you talked about with um, with the example of Silicon Valley Bank. Again, when you when you look at it on the surface, you know, you it, it doesn't look like an example of greed. You know, no. it, it seems to me that what they were trying to do was effectively, you know, put their money somewhere that was safe and secure and quote unquote conservative. And so when I when I think about what happened with them, how is this not happening across the country to every regional bank out there? And will it, I guess, is the better question. It is. So there was a study right around that time that SVB came out showing that, and, and this goes back to FDIC saying in December, so this thing happened in March, in December, the FDIC published a report that I believe put the unrealized losses, meaning losses that happened but are not recognized on balance sheet on disclosures at, I don't remember now what the figure was, but it was hundreds of billions. A colleague of mine did a study 
examining the sort of mark-to-market losses of in the banking system as a whole. And it was uh, over $2 trillion of unrealized losses. So this is happening. And this was just the ones from increased interest rates. Now they could go and hedge that. So there are all kinds of hedging instruments. And what further research showed was precisely this, what's called gambling for resurrection, meaning when you're really close to default, you'll just double down on risk. So they did not, it's the, the weakest banks did not hedge. And so they, but now we're supporting them. So we're kicking the can down the road the way we did in, if you have older listeners, just savings and loan. You know, they were in the 80s, high interest rates and really weak savings and loan. And we just let them persist and loot and do all kinds of things. And then we had a major crisis in our hands. So another thing that's happening right now, again, for just the overall big picture, commercial real estate. Exactly, because I was going to say that the majority of those uh, those lending and in, in commercial real estate is at the regional bank level. Exactly, and so and it's a mess. Are, so here's my point. My point is yes, things seem. I mean, what did First Republic do? So that was the kind of sister bail. The thing that happened in May first, First Republic was ended up buying being sold to J.P. Morgan Chase. And that was another insolvency. What was the, the business model of both SVB and they're right in the area uh, here. They were they were you know touting rich investor, rich depositors, you know venture capital firms. They would make them loans. They will help them out. They will throw parties for them. You know right yeah. here. And First Republic was making loans to rich people long-term interest rate only to buy mansions. Now, there wasn't a default risk, but once again, they're getting paid 2% a year and they have to pay five. Well, that's a formula for disaster. So the question is, when the losses come, do you have enough equity? That's all. Yeah. And the the answer was they didn't. So the regulation put it that depositors are passive creditors. So they didn't have a debt covenant to say, hey, wait a minute, if you're taking risk, even interest rate risk, you should have some buffer of equity to absorb it. Otherwise, the, the risk will fall on me. Instead, they call the, the FDIC to bail them out. Yeah. Now, so interest rates obviously have come down a little bit. Um, yeah. And does that, I mean, from your forecast, not, you're not forecasting per se, but from what you know, are we getting to a place that there, you know, maybe not as much risk out there or is it still pretty... No, I think the commercial real estate, if you saw, there was actually just a story about it in 60 Minutes last Sunday. Um, the commercial real estate problem is 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 partly COVID related. Yeah. yeah. It's partly office space and uh right. and so the value, there's a lot of them, a lot of supply of office uh, buildings uh, in large cities. It's very hard to yes. uh, to convert that to other uses. And um, and so there were a lot of bad loans. I mean, right here in this area and with robberies and well, whatever else, you know, San Francisco, walking, walking shopping centers and just leaving them. Yep. So there's a lot of defaults on a lot of loans that were for various commercial space, office space, shopping center space, other things. And it's partly sort of online economy and COVID economy, a yep. hybrid workplace, all kinds of other processes that are making the real estate market kind of play out that way. So yeah. there is still a concern. And in fact, what you hear is is the term extend and pretend. And that is, again, hiding losses uh, by by the they just try to. So that's kind of the symptom of insolvency for corporation is the sort of extended, the sort of uh, 
try to not admit that you're insolvent. So there's yeah. just always that game in general. Try to live another day and hope for the best, gamble, whatever, to get back in life. So that's happening to uh, to various institutions in the system. So there's still concerns of fragilities. Basically, we kept a fragile system going. And then when suddenly it shows how fragile it is, we're like, oh, oops, what just happened? Yeah, and, in, and at the end of the day, it's hard to change behavior when when you know the banks are looking at this and saying, well, uh, we'll you know, we'll get bailed out. I lobby. That's what they're saying right, right. now. Right now, right. I mean, the, the, the debates are unbelievable. They're putting ads all over the place about some tweak in some risk weight. I mean, it's all in the weeds. But yeah. the bottom line is, you know, there's just so much nonsense they get away with and so much recklessness they get away with. And somehow they're telling us it's all for us. So there's just a lot of misleading claims in the space of banking. And that's part of the problem is people are not really understanding why the system, it looks fine. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it looks fine and sounds fine if you don't know what they're saying. Yeah. But really, when you look closer, like me, it's not pretty. It's not okay. It shouldn't be okay. So the, the book is called The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It. Just tell them how big a bargain is, this is. The book is under $20 for 624 pages. And it, it's available everywhere, I'm assuming, Amazon and and all the usual outlets. Um, is that The Banker's New Clothes, is that referring to the emperor has no clothes? Yes, that's what it's about. And the banking emperors are coming from many places, including academia. I yeah. mean, there are just many enablers. It takes a village to maintain yeah. all this facade of everything is fine and they're special this way or that way. So I just submitted to the, the regulators a comment letter and I was fuming as I was writing it just last week uh, about the same debate. And and I, you know, we revised the document that's kind of attached to the book called the parade of bankers new clothes continues because you know the emperor's new clothes when they when the little kid says hey the emperor is naked you know he doesn't feel like admitting it so he keeps marching down so we debunk and they keep saying it it's the most frustrating thing and so now we have a collection of 44 flawed claims and we debunk them one by one variations on a theme all this all this all this they have a whole collection of them and they'll bring them out to lobby depending on who the audience is they'll say oh competitiveness you know the europeans are not any kind of excuse all the time so yeah. it's real rabbit hole that way and um you know it seems to be depressingly you know never fixed because there's too much politics in banking yeah that's fascinating conversation. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Anat Admadi. The book again is The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It. Thank you so much for joining us on Wellformula Podcast. Thank you. We'll be you right get back. an A for your good question. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, fascinating story, in uh, my opinion, what happened there. And uh, 
uh, Silicon Valley with those banks. And again, it just goes to show it's just, you know, it's not a fair system. And uh, but don't hold your breath. I don't think that system's changing um, anytime soon. It's going to uh, it's just a power thing. Right. At the end of the day, uh, they have power. We don't have power. And, and, and that's the way the world works. So do the best we can. And you can still you can still uh, do well in the long term. Uh, that said, I, again, do encourage you to uh, sign up for our credit investor list if you've not done so uh, at uh, wealthformula.com and, uh, you know, start to participate in, in some of these things and hopefully take advantage of, of this uh, new cycle, I think, that is about to start in, in, in the real estate space. And we have lots of other things going on outside of real estate. Uh, specifically in things like aviation, uh, you know, we have an ATM fund, that kind of thing. And we're going to have a lot more interesting things, including uh, mergers and acquisitions and that type of thing as well. So that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.